This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. This is Dr. Adam Rindy. I just had a delightful conversation with Dr. Mandy, who's known as the IC Healer. You can find her work at ichealer.com. She is a doctor of clinical nutrition and someone who has really taken upon herself to educate the public and address patients with interstitial cystitis and painful bladder syndrome. We had a great conversation where we went into many aspects of the experience of a patient who has interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, the disruption in the body that might be taking place, such as issues with mast cells and issues with gut permeability or gut dysbiosis or gut imbalances. And we also go into issues with oxalates, which is an interesting component of the struggle with IC and painful bladder syndrome is dealing with oxalates from the diet. And so we talked about that and various other pathways about how to organize and heal from these conditions. Uh, Very enlightening to hear her dietary approaches and nutrition approaches, also her strategies and prioritizing what is important to focus on first, and also how she incorporates other aspects of these um, imbalances, such as thinking about fungal causes, um, mycotoxin causes, and other uh, environmental chemical triggers for these bladder issues. So with this episode, I think you'll find that you'll have a clear understanding of what the answers are for addressing these conditions and some clarity about how to to proceed to get help. Um, There are lots of conventional options and many different functional medicine and naturopathic options. And I think it's important to hear from an expert to be able to understand where to start your journey of healing. So I hope this is helpful by those means and it helps people get clearer about the path forward with these really troubling conditions um, that can be debilitating and um, really limit quality of life. At the end of this episode, I, I believe you'll have hope um, to move forward on this path with hope that there will be uh, better days ahead. So um, without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Mandy, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Thank you. Yeah, so I wanted to get started a little bit hearing about the um, path you've taken. Uh, I, I think it'd be really helpful for our audience to hear about the uh, what a doctor of nutrition is. Um, I was telling you offline that I have been uh, so impressed with your profession um, and your ability to synthesize this amazingly complex world of functional, integrative, naturopathic nutrition, and just kind of pull it all together. So I would love to kind of hear you talk about the profession in a little bit and kind of inform our audience. Sure. So, um, well, I actually will backtrack because um, in my undergrad days, I actually was a registered dietitian major. So that's how I started my career. And I never actually finished that 
Um, I honestly, what, what made me not want to do that was when I was told that I'd be working in a hospital and doing tube feeding. And I was like, that's not what I'm trying to do here. So I actually left that profession and went into, um, engineering of all things <laughs> and graduated as an engineer and packaging engineering work for food companies, um, hmm. how, marketing, you know, candy to children, which was not hmm. exciting for me. Uh, so I don't know if you knew that about me, but, um, mm -hmm. so I do have an engineering degree. I worked for five years, um, miserable job. Um, and I, I think what really initiated me to, to follow this career was my own health issues. Honestly, um, I've always been interested in, in nutrition, but primarily from a weight loss perspective, because most of my life I, I struggled with my weight. Um, really just, um, one was one of those girls who always felt like if I even, um, ate a slice of pizza, it was going directly to my hips kind of mm -hmm. situation. So that mm -hmm. kind of got me into the fitness nutrition. And I started teaching fitness classes. I was, a, I'm a fitness instructor, still do fitness instructing. Um, and then I started to do more of the fitness nutrition. I got certified in that. And, um, that was interesting for me, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed with IC, um, probably about, we're looking at 13 years ago now is when I really started to want to dive a little deeper into the biochemistry of my illness mm. and understanding where things went wrong. I wanted to know the physiology, but mostly the biochemistry and how I could reverse it naturally, because the only thing that they were offering me was obviously, you know, med medications and surgery. And I wasn't at that age, I was so young. I was like, this isn't the life that I was expecting I was going to have to live. And so I, um, I feel like that's where, you know, I went back into nutrition, you know, so I already had the background as the dietitian, mm -hmm. but I went back and it was clinical nutrition that I really want to get into. I didn't want to just do meal planning. I didn't mm -hmm. want to, and I don't want to say that that's all registered dietitians do because they, they do some clinical nutrition as well. Um, it's just that that was when I was in college, that's what they were teaching me. And so when I went back and started to study the, the clinical nutrition piece of it was really what I was like, this is what I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. That's where the doctorate is just basically, it's a doctorate degree in clinical nutrition. So you can have a master's degree in it, which is what you need, the minimum of master's degree in order to get the certification through the, um, it's called the Certified Nutrition Specialist, CNS. Mm -hmm. Not to have a minimum of master's, but I decided because I already had a master's in biology because I went back and got a master's. So I went and said, well, I'm going to go ahead and move forward into this and got the doctorate. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I think there's a famous quote that um, the doctors of our future will be um, prescribing nutrition. You know, and actually you are. I guess the doctor of our future, you know, it's here now, you know, it's, uh, and I know you're not considered like a medical doctor or what have you, but, um, it's just really interesting that, you know, we're here. And when I hear some of the conversations that doctors of nutrition are having, um, you know, you're doing really deep work. It's not just, um, putting people on a diet. It's so much more. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, what I realized was diet was highly individualized. I learned that the hard way with weight loss because there was mm -hmm. just, I mean, people were, you know, certain diets that were supposed to be great for your weight loss efforts weren't working for me. And I didn't understand why now looking back, I know why, you know, now I kind of understand that my, my physiology, my, my biochemical pathways are very unique to me. And that's mm -hmm. what I really like about this field. It does really help you uncover, you know, each individual's unique needs within their own body. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd love to frame our conversation a little bit more because we're, you know, we're coming to you today, you know, you know, seeing you as um, such an expert in this area of IC, interstitial cystitis. I think it's important for us just to, to kind of go into an understanding of the genitourinary system, just like an overview of how things normally are in the system. And, you know, as far as like frequency of urination, what would be kind of normal and what the environment usually is like, and then contrast it um, to someone with uh, interstitial cystitis. I think that would be a really good way to start our conversation. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, everybody uses the bathroom, everyone urinates and the bladder yeah. is a, a very important organ. 
And um, it, you know, it, it, I think for a long time, medicine thought that the bladder was sterile, um, but now we know it's not. And I think that's really um, important to understand that we have a lot of new technology over the last 20 years with some of these, you know, different PCR and whole genome sequencing. And they have realized that there is actually a microbiome in the bladder. So um, a lot of the um, diagnoses of urinary tract infections and how they did it with culturing might have, is very outdated. Um, so, and, you know, I always use this example with my own patients because, um, you know, sometimes a, a, a patient of mine will tell me, oh, you know, I had intercourse and I got the UTI from that. And I always have to throw this back at them. That's not the reason why you got the UTI. Um, think about a baby who wears a diaper and they're sitting in their dirty diaper all day long. Mm -hmm. How come they don't get a UTI? And then when mm -hmm. I tell them that, they're like, oh, yeah, because it's like, I mean, they're sitting in their poop, right? Right. So, I mean, if, if it was that easy to get a UTI, then they would be getting UTIs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where, you know, I have to frame the conversation around dysfunction in your immune system. And there is definitely a very strong link to the GI tract in the bladder epithelium because they're connected. So, and they're very, very connected. In fact, um, I had written a, a paper in my doctorate that um, I was actually working with uh, microbiome labs and we were putting uh, some information together. And um, I had found that the um, vaginal microbiome is actually very strongly tied to the bladder. Mm. So when they look at the um, genome sequences of the bladder bacteria, even though the population of bacteria is less in the bladder, they're, they're there, but they're less, they're very similar to the vaginal. So there is definitely, I always say there is something went wrong with the gut and affected the vagina, and then now it's affecting the bladder because the lactobacillus that seeds the bladder are actually coming back from the vaginal area. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the lactobacillus, which obviously happens to a lot of women postmenopausal because of estrogen, lactobacillus mm -hmm. species tends to decline, you notice postmenopausal women are also more susceptible to UTIs. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And then there's pH, vaginal pH. There's, um, you know, sometimes uh, that's off. And so then they end up getting these pathogens like um, gar Gardenella is one of them that they tend to get a lot. Um, and I think that also affects the bladder as well. So I think personally, um, I, I would, what would say from what I'm seeing with all the information I'm getting from labs and just meeting all these people with bladder pain syndrome, and I see that the underlying problem I truly believe is coming from the GI tract. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. You know, and that's, that's helpful because you know, I think we, we have a foundational understanding and access to information from the GI tract that um, much more so than we do from the bladder. Like it's easy to easier to see what's going on in the GI tract for us um, and learn about it. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, so, with the IC patients, you know, with with imaging and various other kind of look, looking at the tissue of the bladder and someone who's dealing with IC or plain, uh, painful bladder syndromes, um, what what does it look like? Is it is it uh, dramatically different than we would see in a healthy environment, or is it still really hard to kind of see the differences? Most of my patients have very normal, when mm. they go to the urologist, very normal bladder in imaging. But I'm not going to say that it's because it's normal. I just don't think it's, has they have enough damage there yet for it to be seen in, in the images. I think a lot of times that's very similar to somebody when they get a colonoscopy, mm -hmm. you know, or they look for, you know, damage but it's not there yet, even though they have the symptoms, because I think, yeah. you know, obviously you're scoping a certain area and you have to be able to see it. So um, those who do have um, abnormal imaging, it's very um, much looks like it's just red, a lot of redness, mm -hmm. um, almost as I, I always say, there's got to be some mast cell activation going on there. Mm -hmm. Because when they do the biopsies and if you read some of the studies, they actually do find there is mast cell activation mm -hmm. within the bladder. So yeah. it's hot because when we think about mast cell activation, we think about histamine, we think about heat, we mm -hmm. think about um, that that burning. That's that's the presentation a lot of the people who do have the abnormal imaging their bladder looks like. It's just it's not necessarily ulcerated. That ulcerated piece, the Hunter's ulcers, actually only affects about five to ten percent of the people mm -hmm. with IC. And that's not my patient population. I don't mm -hmm. have many of those. 
I have mostly yeah. non-ulcerated. So that's why we have to also probably redefine this because in Europe, they are redefining and differentiating between IC and BPS. So we probably need to go ahead and do that, even though it hasn't happened here yet. In Europe, IC is now considered the ulcerated form, the, the mm -hmm. hunters, and BPS or bladder pain syndrome or painful bladder syndrome, it can be used either way. So BPS or PBS is everybody else. That's 90%. Mm -hmm. That's me. That's most of my patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about this because uh, my my last guest, Dr. Pimentel, who's a world expert in irritable bowel syndrome, um, highlighted a very important thing that we're in a different era of medicine where these classic textbook cases that we all, that doctors all learn in medical school, where it's like just the most um, extreme pathology that we were, we would use to define a disorder. We're no longer really seeing because people are having access to earlier interventions or earlier care. There's more information for people to reach out earlier in the presentation. So we're kind of at a situation where, um, we're not getting the clear-cut pathology to make diagnosis, you know, until we get better diagnostic tools with, you know, more microscopic imaging or that are more commercially available and affordable, we're, we're kind of still in this zone where it's like, um, we think you have this, it looks like it, but we don't have a clear-cut evidence. Yeah, based on symptoms, which is how I was diagnosed as well. Yeah, and, and I think we need to make that okay um, at this stage of, you know, the information um, that's available and the speed of research and the speed of, you know, social media and all these things that we, we kind of have to not make that a poor practice anymore. It's like, you know, we have to make some constructs with people's presentation, even if we don't see clear-cut pathology. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and so a patient that would be dealing with IC or a painful bladder syndrome, or we've, we've been talking for 13 minutes, like what would they be going through right now if they were in a full on flare in this last 13 oh. minutes? Oh gosh, it is a horrible, horrible condition. I just have to tell you, I can speak personally. Um, it is, I could describe it as burning, um, pressure, uh, urgency, like you have to run to the bathroom, um, leakage, uh, frequency, sometimes retention, so it can go either way, pelvic pain, um, spastic, griping, hot. Um, I think the big one is burn, burn, burn. That's like, that's the big one I hear a lot. And that's what I had. It can come on at night. It can go on during the day. It can, you can wake up with it. You can be fine all day and have it at night. Um, I do have a theory behind why it gets worse at night. Um, but, it, and sometimes it's very frustrating to pin down like the schedule. It's not really a schedule, but I will say a lot of times it does get worse before, um, menstruation. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is definitely a histamine connection to that and diamine oxidase levels tend to change right before menstruation. And then progesterone mm -hmm. is also tied into mm -hmm. that. And so I think with the hormonal fluctuations, um, it can get worse during certain times of a woman's cycle. Uh, oftentimes it goes into remission during pregnancy. For many people, not everyone, but a lot of that is also tied to increasing levels of diamine oxidase that occur mm -hmm. during pregnancy. Um, there's a very strong histamine. So when you think of histamine burning, that's a lot of what this is about. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I had another layer of urethral pain. So mm -hmm. like almost like I felt, would feel like I was urinating knives. Mm. Wow. Knives. And then I had bleeding and some towards the later stages of um, when the... Um, lining of the bladder urethra becomes um, so damaged that your body can no longer repair it. Um, mm -hmm. I had bleeding mm -hmm. and it wasn't, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't hematuria. It wasn't like your typical blood coming from the bladder. It was literally from the tissue of my urethra. Cause I could literally squat down, look in the mirror and I saw the blood dripping out. So mm -hmm. something was cutting it. And that's kind of how I tied that into the oxalates mm -hmm. because I really, Interesting. Truly that was happening. yeah. So it sounds like you, do you start most of your conversations going down the mast cell histamine route? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't say hundred percent of the people have that. Um, but because you have other symptoms of mast cell activation that come along, that's not related to the bladder. And that's part of the whole health history 
that we have to do when somebody first comes in and they do these comprehensive forms. I mean, they spend hours mm -hmm. filling out forms for me. Mm -hmm. um, yes, because they many have allergies. Many have, you know, even seasonal allergies. Um, many have food allergies. Many have skin issues, um, you know, eczema. Um, you name it. Uh, they, they have other signs of mast cell activation and histamine. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I do. I do have that conversation with everybody. Okay. So a lot of people, you know, end up reaching out to you and are, are most of the people that when they, when they finally get to you, have they been through some conventional recommendations at that point or, you know, done their own kind of trials? On Many have been through functional medicine. Okay. Yeah. I imagine. And, and, and frustrated even with that too. So I think a lot of, this is a really good thing to highlight because I think a, one of the complications or kind of downsides of functional medicine is the lack of prioritizing, you know, what, where to start and, you know, what's it, it's not like the recommendations overall are not good, but they're just, it's expansive and everybody's applied, you know, multiple different things, maybe all at once. And it's overwhelming. Um, so can you, can you talk about how you get people like basically you clean up the mess that's been done and kind of like reboot the process? Cause at that point, a lot of people are just disenchanted, frustrated. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of patients just being like, they're just like, I don't think it's going to work. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. I think the functional medicine providers, they mean well, but many are still in that Western mindset doing functional mm -hmm. medicine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are coming to me and they've been diagnosed with Lyme. They've been diagnosed with Lyme co-infections and they're treating it. They've been mm -hmm. diagnosed with mold mycotoxins and they're treating it. Mm -hmm. That my patient population cannot handle Lyme and mold treatments. They will fall off a cliff. They're not strong enough for that. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people, we're not going to do that. We're mm -hmm. going to build you back up, mm -hmm. build up your resilience using nutrition therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really what it boils down to. And when I say nutrition therapy, it's not just the food because the food that we're, it's available, unless you have your own farm and you're growing your own garden and you have your own animals to kill, it's not very good quality either. You know what I mean? So it's going to be, have to be, and I always prepare people, you're going to be taking supplements. There's mm -hmm. no way around it. Mm -hmm. unless you're really, unless you like to live on a farm and you are totally in control of what's going on, <laughs> on your plate and you're not overcooking things <laughs> and you're picking yeah. them fresh. Cause you know, by the time food is actually on our plate and it's cooked, it's probably lost 50% of its nutrients. Mm -hmm. You know, then we overcook it and we damage it. So that's where I, you know, I always prepare people. You're going to be taking supplements, but yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's where it boils down to. We have to build you back up before you go after. And a lot of times, a lot of these infections, they resolve themselves once your immune system is starting to function mm -hmm. better. So why go mm -hmm. after the mold right away? Because then they end up having the Herxmeyer and the die-off symptoms, and mm -hmm. then they can't even function. And I'm like, I'm trying to improve your function. I don't want to make you feel worse. So I think that's yeah. where, where the problem is. I like that. Yeah. One of my mentors, um, Dr. Lisa Schuler, really um, promotes that approach too. It's like when someone's unwell, there's so much already stripped down and um, things being taken out and it's a very sort of aggressive dismantled state of the body. And if you, like you said, if you're, if you're spending time nourishing and building up and getting and strengthening um, versus, you know, further pulling things out or further disrupting the system, um, it makes a lot of sense, especially if histamine and mast cells are underlying this, right? Because like the nature of a mast cell is, Alarm, alarm, something's wrong, right? Cell danger. Cell danger. Yeah. There yeah. you go. It's cell danger. And um so it makes sense that you're you're trying to support the system to to stabilize first. I think that's really helpful. And you know, I think you you can probably sense with the people who hear that message sort of a breathing easier uh kind of moment. Um, it's a mixed bag actually, okay. um, because some people, they still want that quick fix, even though I I'm see. telling them I'm not your quick fix. This is at minimum going to be a six month process. And actually mm -hmm. for my own healing, it's been three years. Mm -hmm. Me, but I was very severe. 
and I have all the terrible polymorphisms. So I'm like worse of the worst. And if I can do it, you can do it, mm-hmm. you know? So, but the, that's, that's the conversation I have to have. And, you know, that's how we pre-screen some people because we don't take every patient that walks into the door. I have to make sure that they're ready. And if they're not yeah. ready, I don't want to waste their time, yeah. you know? So I have to make sure they understand this is not a quick fix. You might get worse before you get better. Mm-hmm. You know, the timeline's right. all different. And there's a lot of things that um, influence that timeline. Um, some of it depends on age, how long you have the condition, how complicated it is. And honestly, a lot of it has to do with their own accountability. Are you really following what you're supposed to be doing? How many times are you, you know, great example would be somebody who has gluten sensitivity and you test gluten sensitivity, find out they have it. You find out that they have the genetics for it, yet they're still cheating. Mm-hmm. So that's all played into this timeline of healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think that's, that's a good to establish those expectations in the beginning, um, you know, versus like telling someone you know, it's like a four week program or what have you. And uh, things will turn around is just really setting realistic expectations about the, the process of healing something as complex as this. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think, uh, if, if people get there and they're willing to do that, um, low medicine can really, really pay off down the road. You know, and I, when I say slow medicine, I don't mean it's like, you know, you're not doing advanced, innovative things. It's just that realizing that um, it's going to take some time and, and being engaged in that process. I hope one day we can actually put, um, marry the two together where you have the nutrition and whatever innovative, you know, there's tons of innovative things that are coming out, you know, peptides, for example. Um, mm-hmm. There's many things out there that can um, be really help, uh, I guess, put fuel on the fire, you know, jumpstart and move things faster. I don't want it to be a six month process. I don't want it to take a year. I, I mm-hmm. would love for it to be, you know, a six week, maybe four week. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's where the two together, you know, one plus one equals three. Mm-hmm. You them together, you get even more. Mm-hmm. And hopefully at some point we can see that in our future where medicine is embracing what we do mm-hmm. and kind of incorporates it into mm-hmm. the practice. Okay. And do you see anything in your patient's um, background or their, their medical history or their lifestyle practices or risk factors or even like childhood trauma or anything that leads up to this presenting? All of the above. <laughs> okay, sorry. Didn't mean to answer um, no, the question. No, 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 no. It's you said trauma, and that was the one of the first things I will say. So that's a, that that's is kind of kind of be a long winded because um, I find this very fascinating actually. Um, so we're dealing with um, a lot of women, although men can also have it, but it's ninety percent women. We have this uh, presentation of type A personality, mm-hmm. very driven. Um, but almost too driven to the point where they are very hard on themselves. Expectations are very high. So there's mm-hmm. a personality profile with this population. Um, hi- family history-wise, interesting. The cardiovascular piece of it to me is very new. I'm just learning about that with Ruth Chris about the family history of cardiovascular disease and mm-hmm. that hypercoagulation pathway mm-hmm. and the fibrin and the biofilms with the embedded infection. Wow. So that was really new. That's new. I don't have a ton of information on that. I'm just learning that one, but that's a new one where I'm like, oh yes. When I do patient health history and I do family history, yes, about 80, 90% of them do have the heart disease in their family. So mm-hmm. that's, that was one. Um, and then, um, many, 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 maybe about 75% have had some kind of trauma. So there's childhood trauma, there's, um, sexual abuse, there's um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, something that's, they can, when I bring it up, we have tears coming down with yeah. many patients during that time. Yeah. Bring that up. So a lot of that. And then as far as health history goes, um, many are C-section born. Mm. Um, they have not been either breastfed, that includes myself. Um, so mom didn't breastfeed or minimal breastfeeding. Um, lots of antibiotics as a child. So, you know, my generation, that's what we did. If you got sick, you were given an antibiotic. That was normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so those penicillin bubblegum flavored, you know, that's, you know, I always ask people, how many times do you think you've been on an antibiotic? And so many, many times a history of strep throat, many have had ear infections, tonsillectomy, you know, the whole childhood, but that all plays a role in a disrupted microbiome. 
Sure. So all about- of that. And then I'm um, also sorry that the C-section I thought was really interesting too, because you know, that seating, the vaginal seating is so important during birth and you right. miss that opportunity when you do a C-section. Right. Yeah. What about a atopic kind of history? Um, I'm not quite sure if you were alluding to that, but like eczema, um, allergies, that kind of oh, yeah. triad. Yeah. Not everybody. Um, but yes, many of them have either environmental allergies, they've had skin issues. Um, I mean, even food allergies that they know of, mm. um, but not everybody knows because sometimes with the food allergies, they haven't tested it. They kind of feel like they might have an allergy to something. Mm-hmm. So definitely. Mm. Um, but not everybody. I think that might be more 50 to 60%. Okay. And you mentioned temperament, like type A personalities. Um, what about other like aspects of temperament, like sensitive, um, you know, introverted, um, any of those kind of flavors to the population? Most of my patients are very, very charming people, very mm-hmm. charming. Um, I, I, I say I could be friends with all of them. Mm-hmm. I literally can. I just, I, 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 I honestly feel um, they have this, this very strong affinity for people. They're people pleasers. I see. You know? Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't see the introverted piece as much, um, but I think maybe they're extroverted introverts like mm-hmm. myself. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely very outgoing, very, um, you know, yeah, I guess that's that's how I can I, I can explain it. I think that comes from that type A personality because they they really do, they're very driven, very, very driven people. And, you know, honestly, very knowledgeable. When they come mm-hmm. to me, they know so much already from their own right. research. They just right. try to put the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, with, um, I think everybody has to be ready to confront the trauma piece. And it's definitely something that, you know, a practitioner can't, force upon someone, you know, to go there um, because it it can be very disruptive in itself. So I think there's a a way of bringing it up with your practitioner and exploring it and starting the process. Um, But in my, in my experience, I I do, I would echo that the people I've seen have had some type of um, patterns of trauma, chronic patterns, not necessarily just like a single event. Um, but like a chronic pattern um, in their life or um, certain trauma. And uh, it makes sense from a stress HPA access standpoint. It makes sense from um, a standpoint also of like just mast cells being on alert. Yeah. And also disrupted immune system. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So since the gut is a foundational piece of, what we think is driving it. Can can we walk through a little bit of how that might be happening? Um, just in your mind when you're reverse engineering sort of, like I'm, I'm happy to know that you're an engineer because it gives <laughs> me a, a, an insight of how you think. Um, I was raised by an engineer. So it's, it's uh, something I, I was innately trained to think this way. But like if you were to reverse engineer, you know, how the gut might be involved with creating this inflammatory environment. How, how would you see it happening? Or how, you probably know, but I just, I would just love to hear kind of how you, the models you use in your brain to think about that, the connection. Well, um, considering that many of the um, patients and, you know, honestly, Americans have been exposed to things that damage our microbiome. So again, going back to if it's starting from birth or whether it's throughout our life or even just eating the food here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the pesticides, um, we have to think about restoring homeostasis from that perspective. And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and it's also not necessarily going to work for everybody, depending on how much it's done, how much damage is done. I mean, you probably have heard about these fecal transplants that people have to do have really serious conditions. I think that's a last resort, honestly. So I have to first find out from their history where where it's been, what what you've dealt with. What does your diet look like? Because Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, they're not getting enough fiber in their diet to promote Mm -hmm. good bacteria 
Mm -hmm. I don't do stress on everybody. I used to, um, I used to use the GI map and I just didn't find that helpful for a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was more diagnostic. You want to go on some kind of medication and, and mm -hmm. it wasn't giving me functionality, but the stool test that I have done biome FX through microbiome labs, which is more a functionality test. I have seen some very interesting things and just some things as simple as too much protein, not enough fiber, not enough plant-based foods. Now that's tricky because then you have to think about the oxalates. So I think it's a web, okay? It's all a web. And I think what happened was, you know, you had the childhood health history, disrupted microbiome, reduction in lactobacillus, because they're very sensitive to antibiotics. You get the gut inflammation, damaged bladder epithelium, leaky gut, you know, intestinal permeability. Um, and then comes the other issues. Diamine oxidase levels have probably become a problem because you're not producing them as well because your gut lining is mm -hmm. damaged. So there's a histamine and then the oxalates that's where i think is really i still think a lot of ic practitioners still don't understand how this is all happening um and the oxalates i think are really putting like tying it all together as far as the um I, not just the damage to the bladder but also the damage to the gut because these little mm -hmm. crystals can really damage the tissues and really just hijack your entire system and I think what's happening with that is because the gut's already compromised, I can't tell you that everyone's on a high oxalate diet. Some of them are. Some of them are because the food industry tells you that that's good for you, right? Like, oh, juicing, you know, spinach and juicing mm -hmm. celery is the way to optimal health. But that's not really what most people are doing. I think most people are actually just hyper absorbing whatever oxalates that they're eating. And they're also producing oxalates endogenously. Mm -hmm. And now you've got all these oxalates that are kind of free-floating in the gut, they're embedding into the tissue. They can just damage and shred the tissue on any level, anywhere in the body. And yeah. so that's why I think this, when I have to reverse engineer it, we have to start with that. First, let's look at your diet. Are you loading and pounding down oxalates? I will tell you, not, like I said, it's not everyone, but remember, remember the patient profile I just told you about, type A personality. Right. Mm -hmm. Many of them take really good care of their body. They're working out. You know, they're really care about what they look like. Guess mm -hmm. what? They're juicing. Mm -hmm. That's a good percentage. Not everyone, but that's a good percentage. So first I have to start with that. You've got to stop the juicing. Let's start mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. You know, so let's start to reduce the amount of oxalates in your diet. Let's start to reduce the histamines in your diet as well. So we can kind of calm down the inflammation and kind of help restore the microbiome because your microbiome depends on the food you eat. If you're eating a lot of oxalates, guess what? You're going to have a lot of oxalate degraders in your gut. Right. Enterococcus, also E. coli. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of bunch of interesting bacteria that we are finding are part of this embedded infection mm. in the bladder. When they do the PCR testing and they find out that there's like enterococcus, that was me. I had enterococcus infections every time I got tested. It was enterococcus, enterococcus. And guess what? That's an oxalate degrader. Yeah. I didn't know that. Microbiome. Yeah. 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 The only one I ever hear mentioned is like oxalobacter. Um, so I didn't know there was other. Oh, here's an interesting one I learned about that guy. <laughs> yes. That one's very sensitive to certain antibiotics, um, primarily the tetracyclines and the cipros. So that one is very sensitive to antibiotics. And yes, it is an oxalate degrader. Here's the thing that you did, probably didn't know about Oxbacter. Oxbacter does not like a high oxalate environment. It doesn't thrive in high oxalate environment. Mm. It thrives in a low to medium oxalate environment. So mm. what does that tell you? It tells you that as humans, we were not supposed to be eating a lot of this. Mm. It wasn't, we weren't even evolutionary designed to be juicing. We were, we were hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. We were fasting. Mm -hmm. We weren't eating constantly. We were, we had feast and famine, winter, Winter metabolism, summer metabolism. If you're familiar with Dr. Neil Nathan, he talks a lot about the yeah. winter metabolism. Oh, yeah, love that. Metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're supposed to fast. We're supposed to take breaks from eating. We're supposed to change our diet seasonally. We're not supposed to be juicing constantly. Like, yeah. where did that come from? We didn't have blenders back in, you know, our ancestral times. So I feel like we're, we're, we're causing the problem in some ways and, and in some ways, is not fully under our control and it's just becoming this weird web that's happening. But I truly believe that that is really an underlying problem for people. Um, I don't think just IC, I think even IBS and a lot of other autoimmune conditions, I do believe there is an oxalate component to this. Mm -hmm. You were saying um, when we were talking offline that you are starting to really understand um, genetic uh, 
risk factors as far as uh, polymorphisms um, that set up someone at risk for issues with degrading oxalates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, not necessarily, no. So the oxalate piece of it, interestingly, is um, not that endogenous one where if you have the type 1 hyperoxaluria, mm -hmm. that's a very small percentage. That's not really everyone. It's uh, mm -hmm. maybe about, as far as my patients go, 10 to 15% have mm -hmm. a SNP in that, a SNP, mm -hmm. um, whether it's one or two copies. Um, no, that isn't what's going on. This is more um, a combination of, of overabsorption of oxalates from your diet. Mm -hmm. So either, and this is why this is so individualized, right? It just depends on each patient. So it could be somebody who, some of my ladies who have been juicing for, you know, five, 10 years, trying to manage their weight or trying to stay healthy. Okay. That's problem. Number one, problem. Mm -hmm. Number two, we have the gut problem where they're over absorbing any oxalates because they're not metabolizing their fat appropriately. Right. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Bile. I mean, you probably see it in, in clinic. How many people have poor fat absorption? They're not producing enough bile. Maybe they have mm -hmm. their gallbladder removed. Maybe right. they have poor lipase, you know, just their digestive enzymes because mm -hmm. of the gut damage. So, they're not breaking down their fat. So what happens? The fats create soaps in the gut and these soaps tie up all the minerals that you're supposed to be, that are supposed to bind up oxalates to help excrete mm -hmm. them. But now that's not mm -hmm. happening anymore because you've got them tied up by these fats. And so the oxalates kind of sneak in and they kind of pass through and, and, and get absorbed wow. more readily because of this problem. So that's another wow. issue. It's a lot, mm -hmm. it's a lot going on. And then as far as, um, SNPs go, um, the only one I can say that might be related to oxalates might be, or related to the immune system that I see a lot could be the IL-6, mm -hmm. interleukin-6, mm -hmm. depending on how many of the polymorphisms they have there. That interleukin-6 is very strongly, the inflammasome, oxalates can really push that inflammasome pathway and that, that's the IL-6. And so then we're having that whole mast cell activation that way. So okay. Oxalates, IL-6, if you have a SNP, or you have several SNPs, then boom, we're more likely to go down that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, before we leave the oxalate conversation, I just want to comment or ask a question. Um, does this, the pushback I usually get when I hear about people, you know, sort of confronting a potential oxalate issue is like, I don't want to be a carnivore diet. I don't want to go on a carnivore diet. I agree. Is, is that... Um, is that sort of like an extreme version of a low oxalate diet and there's something more in the middle? There is definitely something more in the middle. Um, I, I did want to mention just two more SNPs. I was just thinking when you just brought this up, um, sulfation. So mm -hmm. we do have a lot of people who have the sulfation. Um, that's another issue with oxalates because uh, a sulfur exchanges with oxalate directly. Okay. The less sulfur you have, the more oxalates you're going to absorb. Wow. So that's an important one. And then the last one is the PON1, which is the glyphosate piece. Mm -hmm. So glyphosates, I don't know if you know this, um, your Roundup, the glyphosate can actually convert to oxalates because it ties up your glycine as that glycine substitution. And now you're gonna not going to have the glycine available to, to metabolize your oxalates. And so the glyoxalate becomes oxalate. So there are other things going on there. But back to your question on the carnivore, I do not promote the carnivore diet. I think going back to gut health, you're asking for a disaster in your microbiome. Again, so with the microbiome, biome effects, we have um, two areas you can look at, proteolytic fermentation and sacrolytic fermentation. So sacrolytic is your carbohydrates and your fiber. Proteolytic is your protein. And this, this is going to get me chastised by the, by the um, carnivore community. Okay. But I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this because, you know, I have a lot of carnivore people who follow me yeah. and they think I'm a carnivore dieter. I'm not. Yeah. But I think they think that because they think low ox means carnivore. No, that's not what it means. It means being really strategic at the types of plants and making sure that you have what's called diversity in your mm. diet. So mm -hmm. what I have done is I've taken Deanna Minich's rainbow diet. I don't know if you know Dr. Yeah. Deanna Minich. Yeah. Are you yeah. familiar with her? Oh yeah, I'm a big supporter of her work. I just think she's amazing. I love her. And she had the rainbow diet, and which I thought was fabulous. I'm like, this is great, but it's not catered for the ox, the people who need to be low ox. So I revised it. Mm, so I created nice. the rainbow diet for IC. And nice. I 
prescribe that to my patients. So what I have them do is, well, first we have to find out what, what's the diet looking like. And truthfully, most people don't get enough protein in their diet anyway. So yes, I don't, I'm all, I don't like the pendulum going either direction. I'm a middle ground kind of person. I believe in middle ground. You, hmm. Extremes are never good. Right. So let's, so let's see, most people don't get enough protein. So we do initially increase their protein intake. We do. Why? You need amino acids. The amino acids are part important for your immune system. Okay. So we have to increase the protein. So I, what I've done is I've taken the rainbow diet and I have people make the, draw a plate and we'll do the plate where about half of the plate, we'll just do the lean protein. So that can be chicken, fish, which most people don't get enough in their diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Omega threes are down, down, down. Yep. So we have to get the fish, the chicken, um, you know, grass-fed meats, um, organ meats when you can, although I have I'm mixed feelings about the organ meats. And then we'll have the other side, which is your plant-based. And so I have them do uh, about 30% of their plate is um, fruits and vegetables. And that's where I give them the rainbow diet food list that has um, all the different foods that are low oxalate, that are um, colorful. So what mm-hmm. I have them do is I give them a tracker and they have to track how many colors they're eating in each meal. And um, I try to tell them like with each, each meal, if you can get about five to six colors, you're in a mm-hmm. good situation. So try to get mm-hmm. five to six colors. And that's that. And that's actually really good for your immune system. Because if you think about it, not only are those little phytonutrients are communicating with the cells of the immune system, that's one thing. But the other thing is when you have food, food allergies and food intolerances, you're introducing less possibility that you're going to react to that because you're mm-hmm. eating less. So instead of doing, because a lot of Americans, though their vegetable is a cup of broccoli and that's the only vegetable they have all day. So I'm saying, no, no, we're going to do a quarter cup of broccoli, a quarter cup of onions, a quarter cup of mushrooms, a quarter cup of red peppers, or yellow peppers. You're going to diversify and you're doing less. So if you had a food sensitivity to the bat, it's such a small amount, you're less likely to provoke that immune response. Yeah, makes sense. So it's better for people who have food allergies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then that like last the, piece of it, the other 25% is starch. And I find starch to be a nice to have, not a need to have. Mm-hmm. And this is the question I always ask people. Are you running? Are you training for a marathon? No. <laughs> you work out two hours a day? No. Then starch is an energy form of food. It's a storage. Sorry, it's a storage form of food. It's, you know, potatoes are given to people to give them a lot of energy or pasta to prepare for a mm. lot of activity. If you're inactive, you don't need a lot of starch in your diet. So that's a mm-hmm. nice to have, that's a to have. So that's kind of how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels more like a dessert now to me. <laughs> and I think people you know, eat, I think like the American treat. diet is protein and starch. It's like a steak and a potatoes. Yeah. And so we have it, to really look at how that is. And that's a, that plate is just temporary. I'm trying to move them towards where that half is the protein. Maybe after a year, they switch it where that half is the fruits and vegetables and the protein moves over to the smaller 25 to 30%. I don't want them to be on that high protein long-term. I just, unless they're advanced age, if they have advanced age, Mm -hmm. then they do need more protein. But if they're not, then we want to eventually move them. So the majority of their plate is fruits and vegetables, low ox. um, And the protein is, is back to its normal amount. Um, you know, there's also issues with digestion, right? So they have to optimize digestion, make sure they're digesting the protein appropriately. They have enough stomach acid, things like that. Yeah, I like that. So, um, yeah, the it's very phytonutrient rich and the nutrients you're selecting have a lot of healing properties and balancing properties and repair properties um, on tissue and, you know, getting away from this, like a superfood and it's, nature it's kind of like that's that's probably pushing the body way beyond what it's accustomed to handling you know with even with just like a a super shot of excessive phytonutrients all at once it's you know so it's nice to hear that you're kind of like bringing it into a balance that the the body can actually um tolerate especially if someone's already dealing with inflammation yeah, and you know the the carnivore diet I think is another fad, um, just like Atkins was, and I I understand the rationale behind it. I think it has helped a lot of people, and so if, it, if somebody wants to do it for you know a few months to help you know bring balance back, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But long term, we're thinking about that proteolytic fermentation. You're thinking about dysbiosis, and you're thinking about colon cancer. And that's when I think of too much meat, I think of colon cancer. It's the first thing that pops my mind. Yeah. So I'm not going to promote that. Um, I think. 
you know, when we talk about ketogenic dieting, I think that's helpful for a small percentage of people, especially, you know, if they have already have neurodegeneration and they're not optimizing their glucose, you can switch into mm -hmm. the brain. There may be have brain inflammation and they just can't use the glucose properly. Then ketogenic diets can be helpful. Again, that's a small percentage of the population. That's yeah. not my population. So, yeah. And I always, you know, sort of reflect back to the patient, you know, if, if they've gone on carnivore and they feel amazing, you know, I'm happy they're getting a break. And I usually just highlight the fact that every Every kind of diet where you kind of pull pull levers back has its moment. You know, it's like there's a there's a moment where it will shine. And then I'm always, you know, sort of like encouraging people, you know, what's gonna be the sustainable, you know, nutrition plan for, you know, something you, you could see yourself staying on for life, you know. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's like it's I think it's important to validate that. Yes, people might get amazing results for a period of time, yeah. and you know that that's not in their head or anything. They're actually, you know, probably pulling back on the brakes on something that was flaring them up, and then, but you know, there comes a point where the um, laws of diminishing returns might kick in. Agreed. So, um, well, that that was really helpful, and I know, like this is so far, this has been really good. Just kind of getting the foundations of your philosophy and approach. And then I know after following a lot of your YouTube videos, which are amazing, by the way, I just love the education you do. It's, um, I think anybody who's listening to this should really make sure that they link up with you on your YouTube channel and see all the great work that's out there. But I know that you go into some um, other threads that you, you've mentioned a little bit about um, mycotoxins and fungus and um, I'm not expecting you to kind of unpack all these areas but I just how do they fit into the contract the construct of when people should be thinking about these problems and are they actually relevant yeah I mean if you live in mold and you know you do and your house is musty and you see it crawling on your walls you better figure that one out because you will mm -hmm. not get better if you're living in that I don't care mm -hmm. who you are that right there is I mean forget I see let's talk cancer right? Yeah. Yeah. It's carcinogenic. Um, it's very disruptive of the immune system. So I think that's kind of, you know, I have patients who lived in mold, but they no longer do, or they say they don't, you know? Um, so, you know, the mycotoxin health test is helpful because it identifies the amount of burden that is on mm -hmm. the body. You know, I find sometimes people, um, there have been a small percentage of people who either didn't show up to have any mycotoxins. And I think that's an excretion issue. Mm -hmm. or um, they have low levels and they're still having symptoms of mast cell activation. And I think that's where we have to bring in that whole cell danger response problem. Okay. You are in cell danger. You've been in cell danger for a long time. How do we quiet that down? Mm -hmm. So um, when someone has had exposure to mold, there are so many different combinations of symptoms and presentations. And depending on their situation, they might need, well, first of all, if they're living in it, they either need to remediate or they need to get out. So that's number one. Number two, if there is actually mold and they're high and they also have it colonized in the gut, which you can do some testing on to see, yeah. it, it may need to be treated, you know, with, you know, gentle, gentle antifungals, I say, as later on, after we've built up the immune system and we've done the foundational work. And I, I always say, you don't build a house on a weak foundation. You build a house on a strong foundation. So let's build up the foundation. And then mm -hmm. as the pyramid goes up, you can do mycotoxin, you can do mold detox at the top. And there's mm -hmm. herbs they can take, you know, there's drops, there's herbs, there's different antifungals that are natural that they can do. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other piece with that mold is, well, if you're in the cell danger, and even if you treat the molds, why are you still inflamed? Well, then that's when I, I have to recommend other modalities that are not mm -hmm. nutritional, such as mm -hmm. frequency specific microcurrents, mm -hmm. or EMF mm -hmm. or peptides, mm -hmm. you know, there's different things out there. Now peptides, I can do peptides. We could, we could obviously do that as a supplement, but sometimes people mm -hmm. like to do the injections. Um, so, so I do have to refer out depending on what I find mm -hmm. sometimes in the later okay. stages. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so the, you know, I think we've really done a great job today, just really starting foundational work. And, um, I think this is hopefully the start of uh, future conversations on the podcast with you, because I think there's just so much to share and um, down the road as, you know, as you're continuing to 
um, go deeper into these topics and learning more and more. Um, how would someone get started working with you or at least you know, kind of get in touch with their work? I know I'm going to be pu putting some links in our show notes, but I'd just like to kind of hear what you're up to right now. Are you doing anything specifically or special that people should know about? Um, so I'm still, you know, I do, do take on patients. I did just accept a position at the uh, a college to teach nutritional biochemistry. So uh, I do teach also part-time as an adjunct, um, which I love. I, I think education is, I always tell my patients, um, you're also going to feel like you're going through school when you're working with me. Um, <laughs> it, because, you know, the word doctor means teacher. Right. Yep. Right. It's, you know, there, it comes from the word to teach. So if I haven't taught you something, when you've come out of here, I didn't do my job. Yeah. So that's part of, you know, the experience of being with IC healers. You also get a lot of learning and education. I um, mean, yes, we do. We are accepting patients again in January. I did close my uh, practice down in, in December, um, just got real busy. And so we are accepting that. And also, um, I do have an IC healer course. I don't think a lot of people know about it. It's on the website. It's a self-healing course. Um, if you're nice. not ready to do any lab testing, you're not really dive in that deep yet, but you just kind of want to know what we're doing. We have a course on the website. It's called nice. the self-healing course. Um, I have two courses now. I have that and I have the end chronic pain course, which is more about oxalates and mast cells mm -hmm. and histamines. So that's more geared towards that piece. And then the IC healer course is kind of like the full course about just every, all the different pieces we just talked about. I, I kind of go into, um, you know, the role trauma plays, stress. Um, the gut, we have a gut health, um, exercise, stress management, um, eight, I have the eight known causes of IC is what I created mm. the eight mm. known causes of IC. And I go into all those causes in my course. So. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you have lots of, uh, stories of people who've got their life back and, um, you know, a community of people that have gone through your, your program. So. Um, yeah, I think it's really great for people to link up with someone like yourself. And uh, I think it's one of the most valuable things about um, getting good information is it's just you can't underestimate um, the value of a good plan and also clarity and, you know, understanding, you know, because uh, it's so empowering when a patient finally feels like, they have a, a plan that they they feel good about and they feel clear about what's going on with them. You know, it's like you can see you can see that this is leading somewhere versus just sort of being in a disarray of confusion and desperation. Well, in my office, my normal office, when I'm there, I have a sign behind me that says hope. Yeah. Um, there is another area that's not really looked at by medicine. Uh, it should be. It's the power of the mind mm -hmm. and the power of hope. And you see this with the placebo effect all the time. Yeah. When somebody believes that something's working, it's the placebo, but they're still getting the results. Why mm -hmm. is that? So there's a whole piece of it. And I think when someone signs up with somebody who has, you know, similar background as us, you know, and who, who, who can give them that path to healing, I think it really does initiate this feeling of hope. And that hope yeah. is carrying them through all of that. And this is, and I've actually noticed that um, there's a few patients who, before we even start protocols, before we even have started supplements or anything within a month, I'm doing, cause I do pain charts and I, I chart their pain over time. This drop in pain. And mm. I tell myself physiologically, is that really possible? Like they haven't done anything. Could that be hope? Could be hope be driving that. And so then now, you know, I'm thinking, well, there's physiology behind hope. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So what role is hope playing with changing the physiology of that person? Yeah. Yeah. Super I, important. Well, well said. Yes. Well, if there's, um, that, that's actually a really good way to kind of wrap up the, the podcast with that message. So I appreciate you doing that and we'll make sure that all the links to everything we mentioned, um, and to your YouTube channel and all um, your your programs are put in the show notes. Um, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy and um, this has been uh, very helpful. So thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. 
please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.